All right, welcome back to Freight 360. This is, what are we calling this, the final mile? Yeah, I well, like the final mile. Q&A All right, with well, our listeners. first final mile from Freight 360 Q&A section here, um, where we're going to answer your questions. Make sure to always send us uh, your questions, and we will get to as many as we can on the show. You can send them through our website, which is preferred because we get an email we do pull some through our Facebook group where there's over 80,000 of you in there. So I, we can't answer all of them. Um, but make sure to, in order to support us, check out our sponsors, Blue Book Services, who has both produce and lumber leads and credit reporting for you. DAT, you get a free month of the DAT, the DAT1 load board and also Lean Solutions Group for staffing purposes. So our first question is... I'm a daily company driver. Can I start small and brokering while I'm still driving? So we've gotten this question in different ways. Like people have asked, oh, can I broker part-time to start off? And the answer to that was always, well, do your do the problems in brokerage, are they only part-time? Because if you're only going to work part-time. So here's the issue with, uh, can you start brokering while still driving? Sure. Will you be good at it? Probably not. Right. Reason being, we were t- we so Ben and I are. What's that? Are we accredited? We're accredited. Uh, accredited professors for the Commonwealth uh, edu- of Virginia for the. I think it's TIA. educators. Is yeah, the title. we're educators for the TIA. So about once a month, we do a um, a uh, a training session for the for the new folks of the TIA and their new broker success program. And one of the questions or one of the things we talked about recently was like the home office setup and like just strictly like multiple monitors, like being able to see everything all at once, your CRM, yeah. your TMS, the load boards. If you're driving, first of all, you better not be on your phone while you're driving <laughs> yeah. and you're gonna be very, very limited. So if you're if you say, OK, I'm only going to work on brokerage during my my reset period or during my 10 hour rest or during my breaks, um, you're just not going to be efficient because you just strictly aren't putting enough time and effort into it and your mindset's not um, not all in there. I think to truly succeed, you need to commit just about a full day's work, five days a week for months before you can expect your results to actually start to happen. What do you think? I really agreed with that for most of my career and even until more recently. And I would say what changed my view on this a bit is, one, working with clients that are doing this part-time, and two, coming across situations where that actually is doable. And I'll go through a couple, right? So I've got a client who's been working with us for about three years now, and she owns a few companies. Like she owns like a few Kogos in California. And, you know, what's a Kogo? Kogos are like um, convenience stores. So like Kogo, okay. 7-Eleven. Like yeah. And it might be a 7-Eleven. I, I honestly can't remember. But regardless, it's a convenience store, right? So does work on site, oftentimes owns and manages those businesses, has employees. But she's got, you know, on any given day, anywhere from three to six hours that she allocates to brokering freight. And again, she's built. And again, I think what you want to ask yourself before you even listen to my answer is like, how do you define success, right? And for this individual, 
loves the industry, likes shipping, loves moving freight, loves talking with drivers, loves talking with customers, likes making sales calls, likes building relationships. And she's built, again, I would say it's a smaller book of business, you know, a handful or maybe two handfuls of customers over the few years, runs a handful to a dozen loads a week with carriers that she's built relationships with, mostly local in their area, right? Like local to like where they're physically located, um, not bouncing around the country, looking just for the most money or the most money you can make in the industry. And I would say, you know, from her definition and from my point of view, working with her, like she's successful and she wants to continue to grow as she learns more and builds on this. She's now hired teams where she's growing some of these things more. And it was an example, again, it's anecdotal of somebody we worked with that has done this. And I'll give you a second one on the driver side, right? Drivers are your front. I, I always kind of look at them as like, they're like your front line like meaning like they're your boots on the ground. They're talking to shippers. They see the issues that we are only told about as brokers. So they can, they know where most of these places where carriers don't want to load. They know the places they do want to load. They know which places tend to pay more, pay less. And they also know lots of other drivers, right? That may have been fleet drivers that now have become owner ops. And I know of a few that have built brokerages off of their own customer relationships that exceeded their ability or their capacity. They've got their brokerage license. And again, there's one in Chicago I've worked with and have for years. Like they've got like five or six either relatives or close friends that are all owner ops that had driving experience. And basically the one of them has the larger customers that he'd worked with longer. And when this customer goes, Hey, I wish I had five more of you. He's like, look, I've got five more of me. What do you guys want to do? So he isn't doing the traditional sense of brokerage. Like I think we talk about most meaning constantly available for any issues whenever your customer needs it to be able to work the load boards or the market to get loads. But he is absolutely brokering freight to a smaller network of carriers. And he can do that driving because again, he's upfront with the customer, the shipper and going, Hey, I need these loads, you know, a few days in advance. I can't do things last minute, but if you really like the service, I'll get you more capacity of guys. I know, like, and trust, I know their equipment. I know they're reliable. I know they're reliable people. And he's got a decent little book of business, you know, amongst his small network of carriers. And he does do his part-time. That's fair. And I would say that's the exception, not the rule. I have also seen it the opposite way where somebody backs into part-time when they were doing it full-time. You know, they they got their go-to shippers, their go-to carriers, and they kind of back into, hey, I'm going to scale things back and uh, do it that way. So, but hey, interesting perspective there. And it's good to have two different uh, opinions on it, per se. Our next question, uh, I'm a new broker. And every job posting asks for a book of business, which I think means a clientele base. If I had a clientele base, why would I need to work for a company? So I mean, this is a, uh, to answer your question, if you are a new broker, you probably shouldn't be applying. If you're a licensed broker, you don't need to be applying for jobs. But let's say you went through a broker training and you're applying for a job, which this is likely some of the companies out there are asking for a book of business or a client base. Um, absolutely. Right. The ones like if you're going to be an agent somewhere, um, they most of the time want you to already have a book of business or a customer base because you're going to go work under their authority and it's straight commission. And they only want to bring on people that are going to come in with business and produce reason being they tend to pay a lot of commission. 
Um, they also tend to have much lower or unstructured or no training at all because exactly. they're not built to be able to take somebody and teach them the industry. They're built in a specific way to work with the people that know the industry that want to earn the higher commissions yep. and give them the flexibility and freedom to do so, right? W-2 exactly. is structured to do the opposite, meaning you're going to get lower commissions, but you're going to have more structured training and you're going to have likely a salary or a guaranteed at least some amount of money while you build that book of business. Yeah. So like I, I've, I had people that reach out to me and they want They're like, Hey, can I come be an agent with your company? And they're like, I've gone through, you know, my local colleges, broker agent training program, where they went through a course or whatever. And we're just not one of the companies that's designed to take people on that aren't already brokering. Right. So I always tell them like, Hey, the training you took is extremely valuable, but you need to apply that to the right kind of company that can pick up where that training like basically leaves off. Right. Now you need some on the job training where someone's working with you. Right. And you need to have likely, you're probably going to want to have some kind of uh, commission draw or base pay while you build up your book of business. Okay. Um, So, that's why, uh, to answer the, the, this is a woman that reached out and asked this, to answer her question, um, if you have a client base, you would need to work for a licensed brokerage if you don't have your license yourself or if you don't want to run the company yourself. You just want to do the sales and operations side. So uh, any other thoughts on that one? Just in... Again, the person that asked us, the advice I would give is, again, to look at the types of companies you're trying to work with and ask yourself, what do you want in return, right? And you could listen to some of our other content related to like how these companies are structured. But again, I do want to reiterate, they're structured very differently for very different objectives for both the company and the people that work for them, right? So just like I think college degrees for a large part, right? Like companies aren't really looking for you to go to college to know what to do once you start your job. They're really looking at it more from, do you have a baseline understanding? Can you follow through with your commitment? And are you have some baseline level of education that opens the door? Yeah, I'll never forget when I got my first job at a bank. And again, I majored in finance and accounting. And I remember literally getting this job thinking like, I'm so glad I did this. I spent all this effort learning these specific things and had a tremendous amount of wind let out of my sales. And like the first meeting I had with one of the VPs, he sat me down and he goes, Ben, like, I don't really give a shit what you learned or what they told you in school. I'm going to teach you everything or we're going to teach you everything we need you to know about doing this job within the bank. We just wanted to make sure you could actually get through school before we were going to hire you. And it was like, wow, it was kind of like a big letdown and a lot of energy and years of my life that I felt went towards this objective. But hey, I mean, it's part of it. It didn't mean it wasn't helpful. And it absolutely helped me succeed tremendously or faster, I think, than otherwise. And I think that's also the case with, you know, brokerage courses and education in general. Yep. I know. I agree. I agree. All right. Next question is what load board can I use for auto hauling? Um, Well, there's I want to differentiate. There's two main types of auto hauling. Um, and it's based on the scale. Is it the single vehicle or is it a lot of vehicles? So like dealerships and rental car companies will be your larger volume. They want to reposition a lot of vehicles at once. And then your smaller ones are going to include, um, you know, your aunt and uncle or grandma and grandpa who are snowbirds and want to move their car down to Florida from Buffalo in the wintertime and then have it 
move back up in the summertime and they're just going to fly. Right. So to answer the question up front, central dispatch is probably the, the most common auto hauling load board. So it's where you can go and find these auto hauling carriers. Um, and they're going to have a variety of different equipment. Think about it. Like if it's a single car or a couple cars, it might be like an F three fifty pulling a small flatbed with a ramp on it. Mm-hmm. If you've got eight cars, it might be a multi-level trailer, right? It's a very niche market. Um, I will say to just to kind of add more context to it as well. If you're, the bigger volume ones, like your dealerships and your rental car companies, you're prospecting them because they're going to have repeat business. These small little single moves here and there, people pay for those leads. Did you know that's like they will pay so, 25 bucks per lead that comes in and go and bid on and they'll use like you ship and um, like all the little like the crazy like little bidding websites that people use to haul on their little flatbed. Yes. So we have a client actually that does auto transport and he actually lives local to me, um, found us through our show and I've worked with him for a while and I, I know him pretty well now. Um, I'll give him a shout out. He, the company owns is full service transport guy's name's Rob. So anyone out there, I know he's looking to grow. So if anybody's looking to work in that niche, um, you can reach out to him at Rob at full service auto transport.com. But to your point, the business operates very differently, right? He does both and their business services dealers. So they prospect dealers with larger volumes. They prospect a lot of the dealers in Florida. And then the whole other side of their business, right, is in generating leads online for snowbirds that move back and forth once a year, right? So, you know, over time, you end up building networks of people that literally ship their car down every year and back twice a year, right? is part of it. And then the leads that come through where somebody's got to move for a job and they're Googling, Hey, auto transport into this area. And then he pays or does pays for a company just like lean to do SEO, to drive their results, to get them more leads in. And the other way is the one you just mentioned, meaning you can pay for leads from other sources where companies literally, that's their whole industry is they build a website to generate traffic and then they sell those leads to auto brokerages around the country. And I'll be honest, like it's very fast moving because there's not huge dollar amounts on every transaction, but it can be very lucrative again, just like traditional brokerage, just in a different way. Um, Because again, it's just a different model of how it functions. One one thing to note on auto hauling is keep in mind the value of the cargo because insurance policies are, have a standard limit. And if you're moving somebody's Ferrari, just keep that in mind. So, all right. Very different by the way. I also, one more note on that. Like I had a colleague when I used to work at one of the larger brokerages that ended up flipping a pretty large account with one of the major auto manufacturers in the U S and I mean, that thing was very, very profitable for a very long time. So, I mean, if you can get into it, and again, it takes time and relationships and phone calls to establish those things, like it can be quite profitable if you do it well. Yeah, we set up uh, Ford a couple of years ago, but it wasn't to move vehicles. It was like auto parts. And I was like, at least that's more like normal stuff going on a, a traditional truck. So. Um, all right. Last question here is about double brokering. So in a double broker situation, who is responsible to pay the carrier? Is it the shipper, the original broker, the double broker? Well, and I'll answer this two different ways. 
who's responsible by law and who actually typically pays it. So by law and like map 21 back in 2012 established a lot about brokerage and who's responsible for what and a lot of legal stuff. Um, the customer, the shipper is ultimately responsible for the freight bill. Okay. If a, so if a fraudulent double brokerage activity happens, the, um, Broker gives it to who they think is a carrier. That carrier illegally rebrokers it, takes a quick pay, falls off the face of the earth, promises a high rate to the second carrier. Second carrier comes around eventually to the cost of the shipper. By law, the shipper would be required to pay that freight bill a second time, once to you as the broker and once to that carrier as the person who hauled it. Now, in reality, us as brokers, if we've been duped in a double broker scam, we're going to be the ones that usually pay that bill so we end up paying it twice. Reason being, if our customer has to pay it twice, they're not going to use us again. <laughs> yeah. And there's right. a very different reasons for that, right? Like usually the brokerage is paying it so they can continue doing business with the customer, not because they're legally obligated to do it, right? Like, and again, exactly. not an attorney, but the way it's been explained to me by multiple attorneys is freight law follows <clears throat> the company that put the freight on the company's truck. The company's truck that hauled the freight is the one that is always legally owed money by the company that tendered or needed the freight moved. Meaning the brokerage in the middle will lose the relationship and, you know, have egg on their face, but usually aren't legally required to now pay that original carrier. The shipper is. Yes. Which again, if you listen to our episode that we did, that we that dropped on Friday, we talked about like, why you can use the new software to provide value to your customers and why this matters to them. Because at the end of the day, if they use any broker that ends up getting double brokered, they're on the hook to pay that carrier, usually a second time often. Yep, exactly. Um, we got one more question here. What do we got? Yeah, this one actually just came in from YouTube. I thought it was pretty decent as literally as we were going through the middle of it. So I'll read this one. So what would be the difference between a carrier sales rep and a dispatcher? Person goes on to say, I assume there's less gray area for a carrier sales rep than an independent dispatcher. Then says, do smaller brokerages actually have a CSR, a carrier sales rep department, or hire a third party to do this only, leaving the actual freight marketing and finding shippers to someone else? That's a pretty good Ooh. question. Interesting. Well, first of all, I want to identify or define dispatcher because it's used a lot of different ways. They said independent dispatcher. Um, independent dispatcher is not part of that brokerage, nor are they part of the carrier. They're a completely independent third party who's trying to help the carrier find capacity. Uh, we won't get into too much detail, but they're being very uh, the guidance being put out from the FMCSA is really restricting what they can do. Now let's talk about the job title dispatcher inside of a freight brokerage. Um, could be the exact same thing as a carrier sales rep. If it's, this probably came from the recent video on what does a carrier sales rep do. Mm -hmm. And um, in some freight brokerages, the role of finding freight and quoting freight with a customer is separated from the role of finding a truck and negotiating the rate with the truck. All right. We call that the... Um, it could be a pod model, for example. It could be um, the broker and carrier sales rep model. It's different than the cradle to grave model where if I'm a broker at a company, I find the customer, I quote their freight, 
I find the truck, negotiate the rate, I dispatch the driver, track and trace it, I do all that. That's clearly great. In this case, a carrier sales rep, and again, these titles can be different depending on the company you work for. But what we talked about in that video is their role is in procuring capacity. They're not worried about finding new shippers or quoting shippers. They're worried about finding options for available trucks in the market. They can use load boards. They can use a carrier network that they have. They can make cold outbound calls to carriers. Um, And again, that can also be called a dispatcher. Uh, or procurement rep, depending on the name of the co- or the type of company and what they decide to give their job titles. Uh, but that's what it is. How is it different than an independent dispatcher? Well, the carrier sales rep works as an employee for the brokerage, whereas the independent dispatcher is just a separate entity that is not affiliated with the brokerage at all. But now, they also the said carrier. works with independent asset carriers. Yeah, well, they also said like, do smaller brokerages actually have a department, or do they hire a third party to do this? Um, it, like I said, it depends. Smaller brokerages can, maybe they're just cradle to grave model. Like, so if it's just you starting a brokerage, you're going to do both. You're going to do, you're going to be the janitor, the accountant, the sales. Wear all the hats. You're, yeah, you're doing everything. Um, larger companies will sometimes split it up. So they'll have like their account managers are all doing sales to shippers and their carrier sales or dispatching team or procurement team, whatever they call them is just finding capacity and presenting those options and rates to the brokers uh, or the account reps to try and get that load covered. So hope that helps. Any, any uh, yeah. thing you want to add yeah. on that one? I would just say, and again, referring back to the episode that you guys would have listened to Friday, Nate and I also talked about the tech that is making this whole process more efficient. You know, if this was seven to 10 years ago, you would have a department in probably mid-sized brokers and even some of the smaller ones that are literally just calling carriers all day and doing the like hand paperwork of sending out the onboarding contracts, having them signed, sent back, filing them into a system and then getting the insurance and constantly checking the insurance is updated every year or when it needs to be updated for what type of freight they're running. Now you've got programs like, you know, My Carrier Packets, Highway, Carrier Assure, that, and again, I don't know if Carrier Sure does the onboarding, but they make the onboarding so much faster that if you're a small brokerage, you're not usually just onboarding carriers for the sake of onboarding them. You're usually only onboarding a carrier once you've got a load you need to move. So you aren't doing this as full-time because there's not much of a need for it. You always kind of need the demand first, which is the freight, and then you go get the carrier. So again, far less common in the smaller companies, and I think far less common now that we have some tech that makes this a little easier. Agreed. And I think you're going to see tech evolve to make a lot of these jobs uh, easier and look different. It doesn't mean it's taking jobs away. It just means that the focus and the need will be on different things like figuring out what tech and tools we need and how do we implement them and stuff like that. So, well, good stuff. Good questions. We appreciate you guys. Keep sending your questions in and um, you know, we'll uh, you'll see us again or hear us again on Friday for the next Freight 360 podcast. Ben, any final thoughts here? Whether you believe you can or believe you can't, you're right. And until next time, go Bills. Go Bills.